I read a statement for you. There never were there so many millions of nominal Christians on earth as there are today, and never was there such a small percentage of real ones. We seriously doubt whether there has ever been a time in the history of this Christian era when there were such multitudes of deceived souls within churches who truly believe that all is well with their souls when, in fact, the wrath of God rests on them. What a damning statement. There's no tippy-toeing around with that proclamation. Are our Christian churches full of nominal Christians? Token Christians in name only? Does faith really mean anything to them? Or is this a judgmental statement made by some 21st century exclusionist? I'd answer that question, except that statement was written between 1938 and 1943. It comes from an English Bible teacher who trained at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. His name was Arthur Pink, and that was written in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, most of that commentary was written in what we would refer to as the early years in the war in Britain, as they struggled to stay alive. As the West rose to meet the challenge of what we called the axis of evil. See, and some consider that time frame in our history of the West to be one of our finest hours. They, they consider that and they look back on it and the years of struggle, of meeting the challenge, followed by the years of prosperity that, fought, that came after the war, that is looked on with fondness and sometimes even romanticized as being a moral time in our history, as, as being a time when families went to church together, as being a time where biblical morality reigned. The reality is evidenced in Pink's comments that there was much more of a veneer of righteousness, but they were empty of the Savior. And this is reflective in exactly what Jesus Christ is saying here in Matthew chapter 7. Think of it. We've talked about the, the two gates. Jesus spoke of a, a wide gate and a narrow way. And each gate led to a way. The gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and the difficult the road that leads to life. And few find it. And, and just as there were two gates... In two ways, there are two types of prophets and there are two trees. There's the, the false prophet, which we're warned to be on guard against, that he either produces no fruit or he produces bad fruit. And a, a good tree or prophet, by extension, a true Christian that will produce fruit in their lives and that fruit will be good. And now granted, not every tree will produce the same amount of fruit, but there will be fruit there. In a bad tree, a false prophet, or by extension, a nominal Christian, or someone in name only, or you might call them a poser, will either have no fruit or produce a bad fruit. See, these verses demand soul-searching on our part. They demand that we ask a couple of questions of ourselves. First, 
do I produce fruit? And if there's no fruit, well, then I've likely never come to faith in Jesus Christ because a changed heart should lead to a changed life. Now, if I do have fruit, I need to ask the question, is it good fruit or is it bad fruit? Because if it's bad fruit that the tree is producing, then I've never been changed. I've never been redeemed from my natural state, which is bent towards sin. See, deception is a terrible, terrible thing. Self-deception is even worse. And these verses beg the question, which gate did I use? What type of fruit do I produce? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great opportunity we have to join together to open your word. But Father, each of us come with distractions in life. Each of us come with concerns from the past week and concerns over the coming week. And you know our needs, but Father, we ask just for a few moments here this morning that you will calm our spirits, calm our minds to focus in on your word and to do some soul searching. We thank you for, again, this opportunity. And we pray that you will help us to apply through your spirit, your words to our life. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so turn with me to your Bible if you're not already there. We're in Matthew chapter 7, and we will finish the Sermon of the Mount this morning. I know it doesn't say that in the bulletin, but we will. As I got going and studying this week, I just got further and further, and I thought, nope, I'm going to tie it all together this week. So Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23 is where we'll start. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If the listeners of Christ misunderstood his words in verse 19, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, verse 21 should clear everything up. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is clear, despite their fervency, despite the Lord, Lord, despite their claim to Christ, they're not gaining entrance to the kingdom. There's no future in heaven for them. They claim a master-disciple relationship, but it's not there. Their claim is correct. He is Lord. He is master, but they are professors of the faith. They are not possessors of faith. So that begs the question, how does a professor then know that he's a possessor? I profess, but do I actually possess the faith? Well, Christ answers that for us in verse 21. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I must admit, I cringe a little bit. And I cringe a little bit when pastors talk about knowing the will of God 
I, I get it. I understand what they're talking about. Um, but it, it's like this. They say, well, you should know the will of God for your life. And let's use an example. Should I be a doctor or should I be an architect? And it's like, well, that we go to Scripture and we pray over and we use a little bit of wisdom. Should I be a doctor? Should I be a, an architect? Well, if you have a queasy stomach, you're going to be an architect. Do I have the grades to be a doctor? If the answer is no, then you're probably leaning towards architect. Then you ask yourself similar questions about the architect versus something else you think you might like. And you do all that in prayer. It isn't mystical. It isn't something meant to chase the rest of your life. What is the will of God? And I especially cringe because I find youth pastors and I find youth leaders do this with marriage uh, and a prospective marriage partner. Now, I don't mean to be unromantic here, but I am sure I would never teach or preach the fact that there is one marriage partner out there with their name written on your heart. You need to ask wisdom questions even in that and seek guidance from people you know. Is the person a good match? You may start with the fact with, is the person a follower of Jesus Christ? And if the answer is yes, that's a good start. The next question you may ask is, is this prospective partner of mine, are they growing? Is there evidence of good fruit in their life? And at that point, I would actually not trust your own mind at that point. I would be asking people around you. There seems to be this flutter of the heart at times that pumps through our veins and oftentimes blinds us to reality. So that might be a good time to bring somebody else in. So I know some of you might be thinking, well, pastor, I thought you could help me discern God's will for my life and which direction I should go. Well, I can. Jesus just preached on God's will for your life. In the preceding verses, Jesus made it clear to his followers that God's standard was perfection. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he followed up with six illustrations about how they fall short and how they must live to a higher standard. Those examples were anger and lust and divorce and truth-telling and retaliation. All a reflection on what he expects as kingdom ethics for those who follow him. And the standard is perfection. And the same way we react to that today, they reacted the same way in the time of Christ. Well, I can't keep all those things perfectly. I, I, I struggle with my thought life. I struggle with that, that co-worker. Sometimes I just, well, you fill it in. But you just want to pop them. They irritate you. Well, that's the whole point of Christ's teaching. That you and I must realize we can't keep it. That, that we fall short. And I'm going to say something very, it's not politically correct to say this, but we're not good enough. That's the whole point. We are not good enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. Not as we are. Do you recall the beginning of the Sermon of the Mount, the Beatitudes that we went through? Starting in chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are, for the, merci- are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. See, the poor in spirit are those who realize that they stand before God, but they stand before God in need. They're in need of a Savior because of their sin, because their righteousness is like filthy rags. It doesn't match what is needed. And blessed are those who mourn over their sin, who declare before God, I have nothing to offer. Again, who understand their righteousness is as filthy rags. And blessed is the meek person who understands their position before a holy God and lives it out amongst the people around them. See, once we understand our position before God, once we understand where we are before our Lord and Savior, then we come to Him humbly. And we ask, are we thirsting for righteousness? Have we received mercy as undeserving as it was? And if we've received mercy, we should be giving mercy. We are to love both our enemies and our neighbors. We are to give those in need, believers and pagans. We're not to trust in our wealth, but we are to lean wholly on God. In short, and we talked about this just a couple of weeks ago, Matthew seven twelve. this is what we are to do. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them, for this is the law and this is the law and the prophets. That is God's will for your life and for mine. So yes, I can tell you God's will. It's to live out His love amongst this people. It's to come to Him in faith. That's God's will for your life. See, when a person comes to Christ, when they come in repentance, when they ask for forgiveness, when they seek salvation and receive it as promised, their life will reflect those values. That person receives new life and is rooted in Jesus Christ. And like a good tree, there should be fruit. And that fruit should be reflective of the one that our life is rooted in. Should be reflective of Jesus Christ because we are representatives of Christ. This This is what it means to do His will. Now, don't confuse that. That doesn't mean we're perfect. That doesn't mean that we don't slip up because we do. We will struggle with sin. But that does not negate our salvation. That does not negate who we are rooted in. This is quite different than one who pursues a life of sin. This is quite different than one who follows after. That's a different story. But Jesus continues in verse 22. His answer again should give cause for you and I to pause to ensure that we've entered through the right gate. Look at Matthew 7.22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? First, let's clarify. What do they mean by in that day? Well, they're talking about Judgment Day, or as it's called and described in Isaiah 7 and again in Zephaniah 1 and in many other passages in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord. See, there appears to be an objection here by the people. Well, what do you mean I can't get into the kingdom? I, I, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We performed many miracles in your name. 
See, not only do they profess to be disciples, but they also proclaim that they've done all these miracles in Christ's name. And there's nothing in the text. When you look at the text, there's nothing in the text to give us any reason to judge their claims are false, that they didn't do these things. The issue is those things were insufficient. See, the evil one can duplicate miracles. So, excuse me. The whole point is their doing was insufficient. Their doing had missed doing the will of God. As one commentator stated it, in Genesis 15.6, we discover that belief in the Lord is credited as righteousness. This is a magnificent and liberating truth. We can't be perfect on our own, but he is perfect and has sacrificed and paid the penalty so that we can have forgiveness of sin and his righteousness. When we receive these by faith in him, we are at that moment transferred into his kingdom. It's from Colossians 1.13. And we look forward to the arrival of that kingdom on earth. Colossians 3.1-4. So Jesus answers the protesters with a, what I find a most frightening verse, and probably one of the most frightening verses in the New Testament. It says this in verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And that is meant to strike fear. That's meant to strike fear in the hearts of people who have yet come to faith. And it's meant to ask that question. Just listen to those words again. Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. The individuals have been professors. They've been busy doing things. But yet in all they're doing, somehow they miss the fact that they needed to come to Christ in faith. Somehow they miss the fact of what the Father's will was for their life. And you know what? This is, this is still evident in our cultural context today. I think of some that I went to seminary with. I think of those who I worked with in home missions. People that I did Bible studies with. People that I prayed with. People who witnessed with myself God answer prayer in our life and who now walked away, who have been led astray by false prophets, who now promote a progressive Christianity. And I know over this series, I've used that term progressive Christianity. So I'm going to define it a little bit this morning for you. And I'm going to use their words, not mine. We aren't fundamentalists. We don't believe in the Bible We don't believe the Bible is the inerrant or infallible word of God. We don't agree with that creationism should replace the science of evolution in public schools. We don't believe that God hates gays. Just to insert something here, the Bible never says that either. The Bible condemns the sin, but it never says it hates gays. We don't believe that people of other faiths are going to hell unless they convert to Christianity. We do not deny the right of a woman to choose what happens to their bodies. And and moving down on their page as I was studying it, we find this, their biblical foundation. The Bible is read at every one of our, and they even call themselves this, every one of our progressive Christian worship services. 
and is the foundation of our beliefs, faith, and values. Progressive Christians' beliefs are rooted in Jesus. We believe in the Trinity, God the Creator, Jesus the Christ, and the Holy Spirit. We believe that Jesus' commandment to love one another as I have loved you is foundational. We'll stop there. So essentially, they divorce God's love from his holiness. They divorce God's love from his law. They unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament because it's convenient for them. They misunderstood what Jesus meant by saying he came to fulfill the law, not to do away with it. And they would have to downplay the Apostle Paul. They'll need to write off some of Jesus' words and teachings as either cultural or recorded incorrectly in Scripture. Such behavior has been going on for a very long time where people want a desire to see Scripture in their own eyes rather than what God is really saying. This was, behavior was evident all through Israel. We even read it this morning. The nation of Israel again and again proclaimed itself to be God's holy people, to be God's chosen, where his favor rested upon them. And what do we see in the Old Testament? Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, God sends prophet after prophet after prophet, calling the people back to do his will. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to read some verses from there for you. But Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On that day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they will always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And in verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness, and to whom he did swear that they would not enter his rest? but to those who, who were disobedient. So we see that we are unable to enter because of unbelief. 40, they, 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 saw, they saw that God had taken them out of the land of, of Egypt and he protected them. And even with all that happened, 
They walked away. They hardened their hearts. The exhortation here in Hebrews is a clear illustration of what Jesus is calling for. And as he ends the Sermon of the Mount, it's interesting that he concludes with a parable that has a theme of judgment. And the theme of judgment is there to drive home a point to us. So as you, as you make your way back to Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27 as we conclude, I want to draw another point to your attention. And sometimes this is missed or overlooked in our passage. But it's interesting. It would have infuriated the religious leaders of the day. They would have expected Jesus to talk about someone who was going to judge them. They would expect him to say God was going to judge them. But here in our passage, as we read, Jesus presents himself as judge. Not only does he decide who enters the kingdom, he's the one that decides who will be banished from his presence. So clearly, Jesus equates himself as God. Back over to Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine, and he's speaking about all of what we've talked about. So this is the end of the sermon. So he's saying, right back to Matthew 5, as we have recorded, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them would be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and it was, and great was the fall of it. So the parable consists of two builders. And you know what? In a very real sense, each of us are builders. To live means you build. Like how William Hendrickson said it in his commentary on Matthew. Every thought he conceives and every word he speaks and every deed he performs is, as it were, a building block. Gradually a structure rises. Not all builders are the same, however. Some are sensible, some are foolish. See, the, the, the homes of the first century of the time of Christ would be much alike. There wouldn't be too much difference. It's like driving through a subdivision in London. They have maybe three or four designs. I think this is all over Ontario, by the way. Three or four designs, and it's house one, house two, house three. House one, house two. It's very boring. Even my neighborhood, which was built in the 50s, is very much like that. Well, I know what that house looks like on the inside because it looks like mine. And sure enough, if you make your way to visit a neighbor, you can wake your way around the house rather quickly because you're familiar with it. Well, not that I enter people's houses without their permission, just to make sure they're okay. So as we look at these homes, if you were to be back in first century Israel and you were looking at these homes, these homes would appear very much alike. They would have been built out of a basalt, like a dark volcanic rock. And the stone man, or carpenter as they may have been called in those days, would, would carefully take the large rocks and he would square them up and lay them out. And then he would wedge smaller stones in between. 
That would be done for stability reasons. It would also be done to um, help with the strength of the particular wall in the house. Then there would be a wooden door attached and, and, and outside a courtyard that would link different rooms that were part of the housing complex. In the courtyard, there would be laid uh, stone uh, as, as a flooring between, paved stone. The roof would be wooden beams, and those beams would be topped with branches, and then they would be covered with a, with a clay. That way, when it rained, the, the clay would absorb the water, and then it wouldn't leak inside the house. The difference between the two homes, though, is very much unseen. The difference is in the foundation. And in the parable, the wise man builds on a solid foundation. He builds on the rock. And those, that building on the rock is equated with a man who, or woman who hears the word of God, hears Jesus' word, and, and he does them. And we went over this earlier. It, it has nothing to do with work salvation. It has everything to do with one who has come to faith and trust in the work of Christ, trust on what Christ accomplished on the cross. So he builds on that foundation. You and I, we can't save ourselves. We need that rock as a foundation. We need to come humbly to Christ. We need to abandon ourselves and believe in him. And when we do that, the evidence is present. And that evidence is is fruit in your life. And for that person, then when the rain falls and the torrent of water rips through the town or the countryside, the home stands. And I know if you've been around church for any length of time, you would have heard this in a sermon and the preacher would have described the day of testing and he'll describe all kinds of trials that you and I meet in life. And while there's some truth to that, I'm not going to run down that road. I mean, I can think of some great examples from the Old Testament where there were storms in their life. So we think of of Job and all that he went through and how he stood with the Lord. We can also think of Joseph and, and, and Daniel. But in this passage, I don't want to go too far down that road because in this passage, the context of the parable leads us to Judgment Day, the Day of the Lord. And that's very important for the second half of the parable. The, the home down the street, next door, wherever it was, that looked identical to the wise builder's home, but had a different foundation. The, the builder that decided to build on the sound, sand, which is equated with a man or a woman who hears the words of Jesus and, and chooses to either ignore them or what so many like to do today, pick and choose which ones they're going to follow and listen to. You ever done that when you've assembled Ikea furniture men or ladies? You don't follow the instructions? Or possibly you've done that with something you've assembled on the farm? It doesn't usually work out so well, does it? But that's what exactly is represented what we spoke about earlier here. We don't get to decide what parts of the New Testament are worth following. We can't sit down and look at Scripture and say, well, I'm going to take the love, but I don't want the holiness. It's a little too narrow for my liking. I I, I want to love whom I want to love. I think it's mean to believe that some are going to go to hell. 
So instead of being about a relationship, instead of it being about a, 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 how you relate to a holy God and how you approach Him, instead of understanding that God is separate from us and we must come to Him on His terms as He's provided for us, it becomes a religion centered on self. It's about pleasing the individual. God is there to fulfill my needs. And, and we're really good at this. We do the same thing with children nowadays. Notice it's not about the children anymore. It's about the fulfillment the individual can gain by having children. The right to feel whole. The right to feel good. It's about making themselves equal to God's original design. I need a child. Whether I'm in a married situation, in a same-sex situation, they want a child because they want to look like God's design. Reproductive rights on both ends of the spectrum now are about selfishness. They're completely void of God's love. Loving sin is not love at all. It harms people. And in the end, it damns them to hell because it reinforces a lie. See, a life built on the ever-changing sands of man's feelings and man's opinions and morality is doomed. And, and when the storm comes, and it will, how's that person going to hold up? When Judgment Day comes, which I guess if you're a progressive Christian, it, it, you don't believe that that's going to take place if you follow the logical thought pattern and conclusions of what you say you believe. But when the day of the Lord comes, the house structure that's built on sand will fall away. You see, the sand will wash away, leaving no foundation for the rest of the house. And like a house of cards, it collapses. Because there's nothing there to hold it up. The Sermon on the Mount is, is often quoted as a theme regarding love. But this theme of love ends with the theme of judgment. Jesus finishes, verse 28, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. See, as a listener, the original listener stood on the side of that mountain. They would have looked, and before them, the one who spoke, spoke truth. The message wasn't corrupted. It wasn't evasive. The message dealt with important things in life, with life and death, with eternal weighty matters, with eternal consequences. If you were to read the Talmud, you'll find messages from religious leaders that were spoken there. And they rambled on and on and on as they stood and heard Jesus, the Sermon of the, point, or the, Sermon of the Mount. Well, the longest recorded for us had a point. His illustrations grew, drew the crowds in. And finally, he showed real compassion and real love because he was concerned for their eternal destiny. That was the purpose of ending with a parable and a parable that was themed in judgment. When the day of the Lord comes, that's going to be a second advent. See, on Sunday evening, we've been discussing about the first advent, and we've been talking about prophecies and how God kept His promise and how He came. 
as he said he would. And that's what we're about to celebrate in this coming week. As he kept his first promise, Jesus will keep his second promise. There will be a second advent. See, in the first, he came as Savior. In the second, he'll come as judge. The Sermon on the Mount touches on many topics. One of them is, will you be ready? Have you built your house on a rock? Or have you built your house on sand? So I know as we approach Christmas and the celebration, uh, I think we do well to also warn ourselves as we celebrate the first Advent, warn ourselves and others around us about the, the second Advent. So if we spend as much time fussing, and I love Christmas, I just love it, but if we spend as much fuss and celebration on the first Advent as we, as we took that and did that with the second Advent, I think we would change the world. It would be a much better place to live. And, and what's nice to ask people, are you ready for Christmas? But I think the more important question is this. Are you ready for his second Advent? Are you doing the will of the Father? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? That's what's presented in the Sermon of the Mount. So, what we go about and we celebrate, and it's wonderful to think that God thought so much of us that he wanted to redeem us even as unworthy as we were. And then his son came as a baby and entered to live as we did, 100% God and 100% man. He had his eye on the cross the whole time. And he died on that cross and rose again that we might have forgiveness. So as important as the first Advent is, and it is just equally as important, when we interact with people this Christmas season, we need to think about that second Advent. Are my family members ready? If Christ comes back today to judge the world, do they know Christ as their personal Savior? Is my next-door neighbor ready for that second advent? Is my coworker ready for that second advent? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Sermon of the Mount and for all the wisdom found in there. We thank you that it points back to us to come to you in faith. Father, we think of the craziness of our world. We think of a world that runs the opposite direction from you. We think of a civilization that is not building on a rock, but is building on sand. We think of so-called churches that no longer proclaim the gospel message. That deceive people by endorsing sin. Father, help us to stand truthfully and to build on the rock that when judgment day comes it's not a house of cards that we have built but it's a solid foundation in a relationship with you father give us the courage we need the courage to actually be concerned with those that we interact with and live with 
to warn them of the second advent. You kept your first promises. You came as Savior. You will keep the second. And one day you will come as judge. Father, give us the courage we need to share the gospel this Christmas season and every day of the year. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.